Why is the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed your answer to better health and wellness? It's proven quality sleep. Any more questions? Yes, I'm always freezing, and he overheats. It's temperature balancing, so you can sleep better together. But can it help keep us asleep? It senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you effortlessly comfortable. So I'll have more energy for yoga. Yes, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. Namaste. Namaste to you, too. And now, save up to $1,000 on the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed and adjustable base, only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Radio Estros, episode 22, Twice Exiled. Hi there, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere, podcasting from Boston, and with me, as ever, is Yoke Boy in England. Yeah, hi, and today we have an episode for you all about Sir Jorah Mormont. We'll be looking closely at his backstory as a man from the bleak Bear Island who fell for a southern woman somewhat above his station. And then we'll look at his story, starting in A Game of Thrones and Pentos, and following his arc right through until A Dance with Dragons and beyond. There'll be consideration of his themes, and of course, a look at the story of the Bear and the Maiden Fair as his relationship with Daenerys takes center stage. And to round out the episode, we'll be predicting what we think the future holds for Jorah. With readings of the fight with Quotho, the kiss with Danny and a pseudo-advert from Westeros. That's what today's episode looks like. So, we hope you'll stay with us, and now let's get started with Jorah Mormont. The first time I beheld her, I thought she was a goddess come to earth, the maid herself made flesh. Okay, so we're going to begin with a look back at Jorah's past, at events that took place before the books began, knowledge of which are drip-fed throughout the novels. We think Jorah is a character where his backstory and history is quite defining and grounds the character in the current story. So let's take a look at Jorah's past. Okay, so Jorah's around 45 years old at the start of game. He's clearly had a fair old life, even before we meet him. As a young man, his father, Jor Mormont, married him to an as-yet-unnamed woman of House Glover. Jura describes her as not unkind, but plain-faced, and their love as dutiful rather than passionate. However, Jura suffered some anguish here, as the ten years of marriage only produced a string of miscarriages, and his wife died after the third so Jura has already been unlucky in his love life and his attempts to build a family. And his father Jorah was soon to join the Night's Watch, leaving the family seat to Jorah, his heir. And it must have been really important for Jorah to see his son marry once more and produce an heir of his own. And despite, quote, no shortage of marriage offers, as Jorah puts it, any thoughts of another marriage would need to wait, as along came the Greyjoy Rebellion. Jorah took this opportunity to really distinguish himself as a warrior. Yeah, behind Thoros of Mir, Jorah was one of the first men past the wall in the Siege of Pike. For his courage, which we see plenty of in the main story, he was then knighted by King Robert Baratheon himself, and a knighthood from a king 
is a very high honor indeed. Yeah, it is. And it's even mentioned that Jorah was anointed by the High Septon as well. While facts like these highlight that Jorah must have been full of pride and honor, it's worth pointing out that Jorah is a northerner of first-man descent whose family worships the old gods. These ceremonies would be somewhat unusual for someone of his background. There is the occasional northern knight, like Sir Roger Cassell, and even young Bran Stark dreams of becoming a knight, but it's definitely not the norm. What we're trying to say is that Jorah was perhaps attracted to the traditions of the South. Maybe this hard man from a tough place in the far north was beginning to like the idea of being a southerner, which, as we'll see, causes some huge problems. And to tell that tale, we need to start at the tourney of Lannisport. And this detailed story, by the way, comes from Jorah himself, in Clash, while talking with Danny in the Red Waste to kill some time. To celebrate the Crown's victory in the Greyjoy Rebellion, King Robert declared attorney. Jorah spotted an attractive woman half his age, Lyness Hightower. He says, I could not take my eyes off her. In a fit of madness, I begged her favour to wear in the tourney, never dreaming she would grant my request. Yet she did. And with this lady's favour, Jorah says he was unstoppable in the joust. He tells Danny, I fight as well as any man, Khaleesi, but I have never been a tourney knight. Yet with Lanessa's favour knotted round my arm, I was a different man. He beat Lord Jason Malister, Bronze Yon Royce, Sir Ryman Frey, Sir Hostine Frey, Lord Went, Strongbore, and Sir Boris Blount. So we can already see the profound effect catching the eye of this young woman had on Jorah. In the final joust, he broke nine lances against Jamie Lannister before the king declared Jorah the victor. Once again, not unlike the knighthood following the Greyjoy Rebellion, Jorah gained prestige and honor in a southern fashion, and here he uses it to further new aspirations. Yeah, like we said, perhaps the southern way of life was starting to appeal to Jorah, Certainly, jousting and tournaments do not hold a high position in northern culture, as perhaps his admission that he was no tawny knight indicates. Anyway, now he has a southern woman on his mind, and one that was of a lot higher birth. It says he was drunk on glory, and soon after crowning Linas as the Queen of Love and Beauty, he asked Lord Leighton Hightower for the hand of his daughter. To his complete surprise, the offer was accepted, and it says, For a fortnight I was the happiest man in the wide world. Of course, the fortnight he's referring to is the time it took to sail back to his home and seat at Bear Island. Being a southern lady and coming from a well-moneyed family, Liness suffered a culture shock when she got north. Gatlin even thinks of Lanessa's failure to integrate into the northern way of life when she considers how hard the north had been for her initially. It says, She remembered how young the lady Lanessa had been, how fair and how unhappy. One night, after several cups of wine, she had confessed to Catelyn that the north was no place for a high tower of Old Town. Yes, so Lanessa, by both Catelyn's and Jorah's accounts, was very unhappy. She simply couldn't fit in with the northern way of life, and so Jorah became increasingly concerned, feeling the need to impress her and to cater to her. He built a ship and took her south and to Essos. 
He ordered a new cook and a harper from Old Town, but it seemed that Liness's hunger for the southern luxuries could not be sated. And soon Jorah could no longer make ends meet. He simply couldn't afford Liness's tastes. And in a desperate attempt to allow her to keep her jewels, Jorah did things he can't speak of. But we know from Illyrio that he sold some poachers to a Tyrashi slaver instead of giving them to the Night's Watch. And from Ned, we hear that Jorah's crime had dishonored the North. Although it's clear Ned doesn't know the full story of Liness, not that that would have been much of a mitigating factor. But Jorah's rather sad story doesn't end there. After selling those poachers, he had to flee the North, living on the run, in exile, and ended up in Lys. This is where Jorah says Liness died to him. He says, In half a year my gold was gone, and I was obliged to take service as a sellsword. While I was fighting Bravosi on the Rhoyne, Liness moved into the manse of a merchant prince named Tregar Ormelin. They say she is chief concubine now, and even his wife goes in fear of her. And when Danny asks if he hates Liness now, Jorah replies, almost as much as I love her. So it seems that Jorah was still in love with Liness at this point, a tragic aspect to his personality, and one that we'll see manifesting once more in the story. So, exiled from his home, his family, and his love, Jorah went on to sell his sword and lived for a time in Volantis. And this backstory is really so relevant to Jorah's overall story. Like many characters, he's had some issues with his identity. His relationship with Liness was doomed by his identity as a Northman, while at the same time it was born from his aspirations to embrace a southern way of life far beyond his station. When Liness got to Bear Island, she got to know who Jorah really was and vice versa, and the gulf between them resulted in a very damaging relationship for both parties. After the marriage to the plain-faced and dutiful Glover woman, Chura seems to have been seduced and perhaps mesmerised by the fair maiden whom he thought was a goddess come to earth, the maid herself made flesh. But Jorah hasn't learned his lesson, and Liness Hightower is not the only attractive young lady in the story. And as readers, we can wonder how the weight of shame caused to his family, his house, and his father hangs on Jorah's conscience. And speaking of his family, we thought we'd quickly talk about the Mormons in Bear Island. Yeah, in terms of understanding who Jorah is, it's interesting to consider what we know of House Mormont. Bear Island lies off the northwest coast of Westeros and throughout its history has been conquered by the Ironborn numerous times. The World Book gives us a lot of details about this, including the legend that some time before the conquest, King Roderick Stark won Bear Island back from the Ironmen by winning a wrestling match. <laughs> right. And from Alisand Mormont, we get the legend that the Mormont women are skin changers. When Asha Greyjoy asks about the father of Alisand's two children, Allie tells her, My children were fathered by a bear. Mormont women are skin changers. We turn into bears and find mates in the woods. Everyone knows that. Okay, so that's a story that highlights a major difference in the culture of Bear Island. One that actually gives them more in common with wildlings than other Westerosi. 
even their northern neighbours. And that is that their mating rituals seem to be rather unorthodox, since neither Mage nor any of her daughters are noted to be married and all still bear the name Mormont. Yeah, and it's worth noting that this story about mating with bears actually has an inverse from the other side of the wall in the person of Tormund Giantsbane, who tells Jon Snow a very unusual story about fathering his sons with a she-bear. And while we won't go into it here, we will say that there's a very interesting theory that Tormund and Mage may be rather well known to each other. So Google husband to bears if you want to know more about that. Yeah, that's well worth a read. And one other thing we also hear from Alessan with regard to the women of Bear Island being fighters is that what we are is what the Ironborn made us. On Bear Island, every child learns to fear krakens rising from the sea. And this is an echo of a longer exchange in A Storm of Swords between Catelyn and Lady Mage and Daisy, which brings us full circle to the issue of Jura and Lyness Hightower. Here's the passage. Catelyn smiled despite herself. You are braver than I am, I fear. Are all your Bear Island women such warriors? She bears, I, said Lady Mage. We have needed to be. In olden days, the Iron Men would come raiding in their longboats or wildlings from the frozen shore. The men would be off fishing, like as not. The wives they left behind had to defend themselves and their children, or else be carried off. There's a carving on our gate, said Daisy. A woman in a bearskin, with a child in one arm suckling at her breast. In the other hand, she holds a battle axe. She's no proper lady, that one, but I always loved her. My nephew Jorah brought home a proper lady once, said Lady Mage. He won her an attorney. How she hated that carving. I and all the rest, said Daisy. She had hair like spun gold, that Liness, skin like cream, but her soft hands were never made for axes, nor her teats for giving suck, her mother said bluntly. So besides explaining the reason for the bravery and ferocity of Bear Island women, this passage really highlights the problem with Liness Hightower. First of all, note that Lady Mage says that Jorah won her in a tourney, which speaks of a kind of disparagement for the match. And of course, Daisy agrees that not only did Liness hate the she-bear carving, but all the rest. Meaning, of course, that Liness hated their whole way of life on Bear Island, as we discussed earlier. Right, and here we get a view of the situation from another angle that might actually give us a little sympathy for Liness. Not only was she brought to a place and a way of life that were utterly foreign and distasteful to her, but it seems like the other women in her new home treated her with scorn. This union of two such dramatically different backgrounds seems like it was doomed from the start, in spite of Catelyn's attempts to encourage Liness that in time she might find much she could love about the North, as Catelyn herself did. Yeah, and the tragedy of this ill-advised match between two people whose backgrounds couldn't be more different, leads directly to the situation Sir Jorah finds himself in when we first see him on page in A Game of Thrones. So next, let's look at Jorah in game and see how his character is presented early on. What do you pray for, Sir Jorah? She asked him. 
home, he said. His voice was thick with longing. Alright, so in Daenerys' first chapter, she's being set up for marriage with Khal Drogo. As we talked about in our Danny episode, she's immediately treated like a slave or a commodity, and she finds herself surrounded by men who seem to want to use her in various ways. As a princess in exile, with no family save the despicable Viserys, we sense that Danny yearns for home and belonging. At Illyrio's manse, she's further alienated as she finds herself among even more unfamiliar men. Here's a quote. Among them moved bravos and sellswords from Pentos and Mir and Tyrosh, a red priest even fatter than Illyrio, hairy men from the port of Ibn, and lords from the summer isles with skin as black as ebony. Daenerys looked at them all in wonder and realized, with a sudden start of fear, that she was the only woman there. So Danny must be feeling very alone there. Not only the only woman, but among men from lots of weird and wonderful places. And soon Jorah Mormont enters the scene. We sense curiosity from Danny as she inquires directly about Jorah's status as a knight and what this man is doing here. Given Danny's passive and resigned tone and behaviour so far, it seems clear that she has some interest in Jura in particular. After being told about his knighthood and his exile due to selling poachers into slavery, Danny continues to stare at him. Yeah, and we can guess why, as it says, she was still looking at this strange man from the homeland she had never known. So, Jorah immediately represents a slice of home for Danny, something we later realize that she craves, whether it's that house with the red door or the country of her family that she'll later plan to recapture. Amidst all these men who want to use Danny, Jorah might be the only one at this stage who can give something to Danny. And this is also when we get our first description of Jorah. It says, He was an older man, past 40 and boarding but still strong and fit. Instead of silks and cottons, he wore wool and leather. His tunic was a dark green, embroidered with the likeness of a black bear standing on two legs. There's also numerous instances of Jura being described as very hairy, which is a neat fit with his house sigil. Anyway, at this stage, it's not clear whether Danny has any attraction to Jura, and her starings are presented as mere curiosity. But the description lets us know that, despite being fairly old by Westerosi standards, Jura might still be a capable warrior, and so we're intrigued when Viserys says he means to speak with him as to what role in the story Jura might take. So Jorah is now sworn to Viserys and seems loyal, and soon we learn that he spent time with the Dothraki. It's said he travelled as far east as Vaes Dothrak, and so he's not only useful as a sworn sword, but as a cultural intermediary, given the blooming long-term plan Viserys has for his sister and the Dothraki. Yeah, immediately we see Jorah offering wise cultural counsel to Viserys, who we all know by now should have listened. Jura's first counsel goes like this. I counsel you to be patient, your grace. The Dothraki are true to their word, but they do things in their own time. Unless a man may beg a favour from the Karl, 
but must never presume to berate him. And this really sets up the dynamics very well for Viserys' trip to Vaes Dothrak. We can see that Jorah's really playing a valuable role, not just for the characters around him, but also for the reader. We'll see that through game, he provides invaluable exposition about the Dothraki, allowing us to understand the culture a whole lot more, and giving the whole experience more depth than we could otherwise have gained. But aside from informing the reader, Jura also has to inform Viserys. And we can see what a difficult position that puts him in, with Viserys' reaction to the quote about not rushing the Dothraki. It says, Viserys bristled, Guard your tongue, Mormont, or I'll have it out. I am no less a man. I am the rightful lord of the Seven Kingdoms. The dragon does not beg. Sir Jorah lowered his eyes respectfully. So Jorah is really a piggy in the middle in his role as counselor to Viserys. And we see as early as Danny's wedding, the dynamics taking root that will spell Viserys' doom. It's worth mentioning that at the wedding, it's pointed out that Jorah is sat in a high place of honor. And so the Dothraki must have some respect for him. And time will tell if that respect is mutual. And when Jorah offers Danny written histories and songs of the Seven Kingdoms as a wedding gift, another of Jorah's qualities that we touched on stands out. He can provide backstory about Westeros to both Danny and the reader. As we saw in the last segment, he's got quite a history himself, and so he's a great character for that kind of exposition too. Now, as Danny's wedding passes, with her internal fright about being effectively sold, the reader does wonder about Jorah's past as a slaver and if these two can really get along. But it's Jorah who answers her nervous question about what to do with her horse, and we begin to sense that there might be another role for this secondary character, that of protector to the vulnerable lost soul Daenerys. So then we get a mention of Jorah in a Ned's POV, when we learn that not only has he dishonoured the North, but that the slaver has become a spy. And given King Robert's reaction that Daenerys should have a knife for her wedding gift, the reader knows that what Jorah is doing could very well mean death for Danny. The placement of this information is measured very well, considering that the next Danny chapter sees her and the spy growing closer. Yeah, that's in the Dothraki Sea. Everything is spaced out, vast, beautiful, and so it's a good time for Danny and Jorah to get to know each other. With Danny being an exiled princess and Jorah himself living in exile, they should have some things in common. The pair find that they've outdistanced the rest of the party on one occasion, and Jorah tells Danny about the plant life and the beauty of the area. He's a well-traveled man with lots of interesting knowledge. He says, You ought to see it when it blooms, all dark red flowers from horizon to horizon, like a sea of blood. Come the dry season, and the world turns the color of old bronze. And this is only Harana, child. There are hundreds of kinds of grass out there. Grasses as yellow as lemon and as dark as indigo. Blue grasses and orange grasses and grasses like rainbows. So the pair are riding together. Danny is getting some much needed human contact. The green surroundings are really beautiful. This is almost a romantic setting. 
However, while we don't have Jura's POV to gauge how exactly he was feeling here, we do have Danny's thoughts. Sir Jura was not a handsome man. He had a neck and shoulders like a bull, and coarse black hair covered his arms and chest so thickly that there was none left for his head. Yet his smiles gave Danny comfort. So Danny doesn't find him attractive, yet she enjoys his company and finds it comforting. With the hindsight of knowing Jorah's previous weakness of a beautiful woman, we can see how Danny might be making an impression on him on some level. We also sense that Jorah might end up more sworn to Danny than to Viserys. This dynamic starts to play out when Jogo's whip takes out Viserys, and despite being ordered as a sworn sword, Jorah refuses to hit Danny. It says, Hit her, Mormont. Hurt her. Your king commands it. Kill these Dothraki dogs and teach her. The exile knight looked from Danny to her brother. She, barefoot, with dirt between her toes and oil in her hair. He in his silks and steel. Danny could see the decision on his face. He shall walk, Khaleesi, he said. He took her brother's horse in hand while Danny remounted her silver. Okay, so we see a huge shift in power there. Jura is clearly impressed with Danny, fed up with Viserys, and too smart to go against the will of the Kalasar. He is certainly a decent judge of character and also has street smarts. And we also see here a marked contrast with the knights of Joffrey's Kingsguard, who later in game and beyond will be ordered by their king to beat Sansa Stark and who will comply to a man, with the exception of Sandor Clegane, the Unknight. Yeah, perhaps we're supposed to remember this later on, that Jorah may have dishonoured himself by selling those poachers, but he's not ready to forsake quite all of his knightly vows. He displays his good judgment further when he refers to Rhaegar as the last dragon and Viserys as less than the shadow of a snake. He also tells Danny in no uncertain terms that Viserys would be a terrible king. But we see more complexity within Jorah in this conversation. Danny points out that he swore his sword to Viserys, to which he replies bitterly, And if your brother is the shadow of a snake, what does that make his servants? So a bitter tone for a bitter man. Sounds like a person who's done a lot of things he didn't want to do and perhaps lost track of what he truly believed in. What Jorah really needs now is someone else to swear his sword to. So the path to Danny is beginning to open up already. And as they bond further, we get more insight into why Jorah is spying on the girl he's growing fond of in this exchange between the two. What do you pray for, Sir Jorah? Home, he said. His voice was thick with longing. I pray for home too, she told him, believing it. So the pair really have something in common, and both realise Viserys is never going to take them back to the Seven Kingdoms. And on the way to face Dothrak, Jura's lack of faith in Viserys begins to show even more. He tells Danny, Your brother should have bided his time in Pentos, there is no place for him in a Kalasar. Illyrio tried to warn him. So here Danny's still afraid of her brother, and she parrots Viserys' assertion that Caltrogo has made a promise to him. 
Jor replies that the Dothraki have unique customs, that they have a different concept of buying and selling, and that they return gifts in their own time. Most of all, Jorah emphasizes that nobody demands gifts of Kals. So again, Jorah has these very valuable insights into the Dothraki way of life, and we know by now that Viserys is too proud and stubborn to listen. However, with Danny growing apart from her brother and being inherently smarter and more open-minded, she can benefit from Jorah's wise counsel, catalyzing her empowerment as she starts to wonder about an invasion of Westeros. And she asked Jorah if an invasion would be possible with a stronger leader than Viserys, to which he shows some faith in the strength of the Dothraki in such circumstances. He says that initially he saw the Dothraki as barbarians that would be an easy slaughter for well-trained knights, yet now he's come to respect them more and can envisage ways in which they would cause havoc in Westeros. The important thing here is that they are both talking together about an invasion without Viserys. Jura is slowly starting to see the potential in Danny. Yeah, and this dynamic is made even more interesting with the reader's knowledge of Jorah's spying. And so on to Vea's Dothrak, the only Dothraki city whose name means City of Riders. Jorah continues to display an understanding of the Dothraki culture, this time informing Danny of their history, and a prophecy that necessitates that their city must hold space for the entire Dothraki population, as one day it is said they will all unite together. Soon Danny begins to think of another history, that of Westeros and the usurping of her family. She thinks about the Kingslayer killing her father and Barristan switching sides and wonders, quote, if all men were as false in the Seven Kingdoms. This line has layered meaning since, as we said, we know Jorah is both simultaneously befriending and betraying her. Yet despite this, Jorah is showing more and more loyalty to Danny. We sense they might be divided in his attempts to return home against his feelings towards Danny. And we learn that Viserys has been acting very foolishly in Vase Dothrak, and he even tried to steal Danny's dragon eggs. Jorah stopped him, and it says, I warned him that I'd cut off his hand if he so much as touched them. And through Jorah, we learn that blades are not permitted in Vase Dothrak. This is, in hindsight, ominous news for Viserys, and is also Jorah's excuse for neglecting his duties as Viserys's sworn sword. Without Jorah, Viserys really becomes a sitting duck, giving his propensity for inappropriate behavior, and when Danny calls him her brother and her king, Jorah replies merely that he's her brother, in effect refusing to acknowledge him as a king. Yeah, when Viserys had to walk behind the Kalasar through the Dothraki Sea, the Kalasar named him the Sawfoot King, and at this stage, that's the only kind of king that he is. Soon, Jorah is calling Viserys fool, as Viserys' self-destruction arc reaches its climax. Yeah, it's in the scene where Danny has eaten the heart, the stallion that mounts the world prophecy has been made, which Jorah had both watched and provided commentary for. But at the feast afterwards, Viserys appears drunk and waves his sword around under the impression that the Dothraki can't fight back. He points it at the pregnant belly of his sister, 
before being crowned in molten gold by his brother-in-law. And now, with the shadow of Viserys forever gone, Danny can really take the reins of her own life. It's worth mentioning that it's Jorah who urges Danny not to watch the death of her brother, showing perhaps a caring and sensitive nature. Yet Danny really wants to watch, showing that she is not as much in need of protection as people might think. So both Danny and Jorah have now really assimilated into the Dothraki way of life and benefited greatly as a result. With Viserys gone, Jorah is now the only man in her company who is of Westerosi origin and fluent in the common tongue. And soon the previous conversations between the pair about conquering Westeros take a further step. Danny pleads with Jorah to convince Khal Drogo to go for Westeros, and although Jorah concludes once more that the Dothraki do things in their own time, this really sets the stage for Danny and Jorah's long-term plans. And these plans look to be coming into fruition after a fateful visit to the Western Market. At the market, Jorah goes off by himself, raising a shadow of suspicion in Danny. It says, Curious, Danny thought, as she watched him stride off through the throngs. She didn't see why she could not go with him. Perhaps Sir Jorah meant to find a woman after he met with the merchant captain. And of course, the reader suspects that he's still spying on Danny. And as Danny looks around the market, she meets a wine cellar who humbles himself and offers a cask of wine. Jorah returns just in the nick of time, and it's revealed that the wine is poisoned, an assassination plot to kill Danny and her unborn child on the orders of targeting Robert Baratheon. Jorah says he foiled the plot because of a letter to Viserys from Illyrio, which told of an offer of a lordship for the death of Viserys or Danny. However, we later learn in Storm that Jura also received a letter from Varys, warning him of the assassination plot. So Jorah's role as a saviour here is complex. It seems clear he's having cognitive dissonance about Danny and his yearning for home. He's certainly willing to take credit here, but the reader knows that he's a hypocrite after his spying probably set up the assassination attempt to begin with. Nevertheless, Jorah takes his pick of the Dothraki horses as a reward, and the near-death experience catalyzes Caldrogo's assertion that the Dothraki will now invade Westeros. Mm, so far, Juris blended in with the Dothraki rather well, sometimes being described as looking like a rider. However, next we see a battle, and it's time for Jorah to embrace his Westerosi heritage. He dons armour, mail, gauntlets, greaves, and a great helm, as he fights the Lazarine and another Kalasar. We learn that the Dothraki had mocked him for his attire, and Jorah, showing some badassery, had left the rider with the loudest taunts to bleed to death. A timely reminder of Jorah's martial ability and perhaps the reason why the Dothraki respect him. And we've pointed out how Jorah's knowledge of Dothraki customs have aided him so far and how he's been able to translate this to the receptive Daenerys. But what happens next is a big surprise as Danny stands up for her own principles and goes against Dothraki traditions. Lazarine women are being raped. It's thought of as spoils of war, but Danny commands Jorah to make them stop. Jorah is shocked and replies, 
Princess, you have a gentle heart, but you do not understand. This is how it has always been. Those men have shed blood for the cow. Now they claim their reward. Yet Danny bravely insists and defies her husband's culture, and we actually see one defiant rapist killed by Ago. It's now that Jura truly sees Danny's power and says she is a brother's sister. He, of course, means Rhaegar and not Viserys. All through Jorah's early arc, we see his power in adapting to certain situations, and this is a good example of how he's a solid guy, yet not too rigid to get behind a brave decision or call. His relationship with Danny has evolved and grown a long way on the journey so far, and that's taken a huge change in attitude from both parties. Okay, and now Miri Mazdor enters the story, which we covered in our Danny episode. The long and short of it is that Drogo ends up falling from his horse, seemingly close to death. A tent is erected as Danny desperately tries to contain the spreading news of Drogo's condition. As Jora arrives, Ago tells Danny the Andal has arrived. Yeah, the Dothraki call him Jora the Andal, which is curious given he's actually a first man. It seems that they just don't have a grasp on Westerosi culture. Anyway, it says of Danny that she trusted the knight. He would know what to do if anyone did. So in her hour of need, and with nowhere left to turn, Danny really trusts Jura here. And after using his dagger with surprising delicacy for such a big man, it says, to lift the muddy poultice and check Drogo's wound, Joros shows no aversion to delivering bad news, as he says, Your cow is as good as dead, princess. So here's Joros showing he's a pragmatic realist and a survivor, as he advises Danny to grieve at another time and make a hasty escape, otherwise she'll be taken to live with the crones at Veus Dothrak. And as Danny's desperation turns her to Miri's blood magic, a dark and ominous mood falls on the camp. Jura ends up squaring up with Quotho in a really exciting fight scene. Quotho was doing rather well, clearly faster than Jura, remembering he's both fairly old and wearing armour. And we see the knight with a bloodied face. And don't confuse what happens next with the TV show where Jura's armour comes into play. But here in the books, Quotho's Arak gets caught on Jura's hip bone as the Dothraki slashes there because his mail was gaping open on his hip. And as Quotho shrieks in victory, we realise then that the Arak has found bone, giving Jura half a heartbeat to cut through Quotho's forearm, leaving it, quote, flopping on a thin cord of skin and sinew. Tora's next cut was at Quotho's ear and was so savage that the Dothraki's face seemed to explode. So we see here that despite being somewhat lucky, Jora disposes of his foe brutally and with precision, really taking advantage of the opportunity that presented itself. And amidst all the chaos, Danny finds herself in labor, and Jura, with the best intentions, makes the fateful decision to carry Danny into Miri's dark magic tent, with her being too pained to vocalize her reservations. And in the next chapter, 
the one with Danny's fever dream, we see that Danny really blames Jura for the loss of a child, Rago. It says, Sir Jura had killed a son, Danny knew. He had done what he did for love and loyalty, yet he had carried her into a place no living man should go, and fed her baby to the darkness. He knew it too. The grey face, the hollow eyes, the limp. So Jorah's really affected, perhaps in part the guilty feeling about Rago, but also having been touched by this dark magic. The shadows have touched you too, Sir Jorah, she told him. The knight made no reply. And what stands out in the aftermath of the post-Drogo chaos is the devotion we see with Jorah towards Danny. This is a man who has been trading secrets, betraying and lying to her, yet now we can be sure he has a genuine attachment to her. Rather than fleeing or joining a new Kalasar, Jorah chooses to stay with Danny in the face of absolute hopelessness. And in the final chapter of A Game of Thrones, we start to get the impression that with Drogo out of the picture, at least some of Jorah's staunch devotion comes from a place of deep affection. Yeah, here's a quote. Come east with me, ye tea, Karth, the Jade Sea, a shy by the shadow. We'll see all the wonders yet unseen and drink what wines the gods see fit to serve us. But Jorah's pleading with Danny to come away with him and presents this romanticized travel trip. In some ways, it reminds us of his efforts to keep a beautiful woman happy in his marriage, when in reality, it was far beyond his means. And perhaps Jorah should have got the message right away, because Danny would rather walk into a fire, which is exactly what she does. But before that, knowing she is on the cusp of a miracle, Danny offers Jorah into her service as the first of her Queen's Guard. He swears to serve her, obey her, and die for her if needs be. And his vows are soon tested as his promise to obey leaves him helpless as she walks into the flames. And when the fire eventually died down, it was none other than Jorah who found her among the ashes unhurt and with three baby dragons. And it says that Jorah fell to his knees. So by the end of game, we've seen a lot of change in the dynamics between these two. Jorah is now appearing to be devoted to this young teenager who, not so long ago, was a nervous and shy commodity. Danny's rise to being the mother of dragons forced change from those around her all through the book. But with Drogo gone, Viserys dead, the Kalasar split up, Danny now finds herself in dire need of help from Jorah. Their relationship at the end of game is really one of mutual dependence, as the pair must now find safety in what is, despite the hope given by the dragons, a very difficult situation. And before we look at Jorah in Clash and Storm, it's time for a reading. Here's that exciting moment from Game of Thrones that we just mentioned. Here's Jorah's fight with Quotho. The knight was clad in chainmail, with gauntlets and greaves of lobstered steel and a heavy gorget around his throat, but he had not thought to don his helm. Quotho danced backward, a rack whirling around his head in a shining blur, flickering out like lightning as the knight came on in a rush. Sir Jorah parried as best he could, but the slashes came so fast that it seemed that Quotho had four aracks and as many arms. 
Suddenly, it was Mormont stumbling backward, and Kothal leaping to the attack. The left side of the knight's face ran red with blood, and a cut to the hip opened a gash in his mail and left him limping. Kotho screamed taunts at him, calling him a craven, a milkman, a eunuch in an iron suit. You die now, he promised, a rock shivering through the red twilight. The curved blade slipped past the straight one and bit deep into the knight's hip where the mail gaped open. Mormont grunted, stumbled. Kotho shrieked in triumph, but his Iraq had found bone, and for half a heartbeat, it caught. It was enough. Sir Jorah brought his longsword down with all the strength left him through flesh and muscle and bone, and Kotho's forearm dangled loose, flopping on a thin cord of skin and sinew. Okay, so that was Jorah making short work of Quotho there. Now we're going to look at Jorah's role in Clash and Storm of Swords. So Jorah begins in Clash by showing us some more of his realism. Now his role as intermediary between the Dothraki and Danny is more or less over. He needs to fill another role. So we see him start to advise Danny on her new path. She states that she's not worried about Calpono, and Jorah immediately tells her that she's in real danger. He says, Calpono will kill you. He was the first to abandon Drogo. Ten thousand warriors went with him. You have a hundred. And Danny listens. She really needs good counsel right now. She's in the middle of nowhere. She has enemies all around and a force of only four warriors, with the rest being women, old sick men, and boys whose hair has never been braided. And again, it's Jora who points out that her dragons are currently of no use. Danny is somewhat naive, and Jora shows his vast wealth of experience and really saves Danny from herself here, steering her to a decent decision. So Danny acts on instinct, with the warnings of Jura considered, and follows the comet. And by now, Jura is accustomed to riding by Danny's side. He's a Queen's Guard, advisor, and perhaps most of all, a friend and companion. So the modest Kalasar enters a huge desert called the Red Waste. People start to die, and it's clear Danny and Jorah face a time of bleakness. When Danny thinks they're lost, Jorah says he's seen old maps and knows enough about the geography to know of the cities beyond the Red Waste. He's the perfect desert guide here. Danny rewards the knight with a kiss. She can see how pained he is. The journey is making him suffer. He's low on morale. And the injury to his hip that we mentioned earlier has not healed and it's making riding really hard for him. So we think Jura deserves some affection here, but Danny doesn't realise that gestures like this are perhaps sending the knight confused messages from his point of view. Right, and eventually the group find themselves at a city, albeit a dead one, Ves Toloro. This is where Jorah goes off and finds that small, overripe peach for Danny. She eats it and we can sense the relief. It's a poignant gesture from Jorah, and this moment leads to the discussion about ghosts and where Jorah tells his story about Liness. Yeah, Danny says there are ghosts in the city, and Jorah replies, There are ghosts everywhere. We carry them with us wherever we go. So we sense it's time for the big man to open up in this rare moment of peace and serenity. Now Jura has obviously seen Danny's ghosts 
Viserys, Drogo and Rago, and she asked for some quid pro quo. Her name was Lyness, replies Jura with a still face. And so comes the story of Lyness that we talked about in the first segment, the three miscarriages and then the death of his glover wife and then the tourney. Jura strikes a really tragic character here as he recounts his love for Lyness, causing his financial ruin and eventual exile from his home. And as Jorah winds up the story and begins to leave, Danny asks him what Lyness looked like. It says, Sir Jorah smiled sadly. Why, she looked a bit like you, Daenerys. So now things begin to make sense for the reader. Jorah is getting closer and closer to Danny, the only man she really spends time with, and she happens to look like the woman he was so infatuated with. It's worth mentioning that Lyness was half his age and Danny's around a third of his age. But we also have Danny's point of view, and we know that she doesn't find him attractive, with no hints that she would be receptive to romantic overtures. Suddenly, Danny doing things like kissing him doesn't seem like such a good idea. Here's a quote. Danny shivered and pulled the lion skin tight about her. She looked like me. It explained much that she had not truly understood. He wants me, she realized. He loves me as he loved her, not as a knight loves his queen, but as a man loves a woman. She tried to imagine herself in Sir Jorah's arms, kissing him, pleasuring him, letting him enter her. It was no good. When she closed her eyes, his face kept changing into Drogo's. We then see Danny resolve to give his home back, and then tend to his physical wounds. So perhaps in return for his services, and because she can't reciprocate his love, Danny wants to try to heal Jorah in various ways. Yet Danny's really stuck here, as anything like this will surely feed into his desires. Yeah, it's almost like she's in a no-win situation there. And after they're offered salvation from the desert heat and we get to Karth, we see Jorah make what becomes a trademark maneuver. He advises suspicion against the other two men, Zaro and Payat. This seems partly because he's a deeply suspicious man, trusting of no one, and partly because he's very possessive of Danny. Here he says, You would do well to avoid both those men, your grace. And Danny thinks, My great bear, I am his queen, but I will always be his cub as well, and he will always guard me. It made her feel safe, but sad as well. She wished she could love him better than she did. As Danny starts to think of the bigger picture, and more specifically ships, she sends Jura away to find one. By now the reader might have forgotten about Jura's spying after all he's gone through with Danny. However, we later learn that he took this opportunity to send messages to Varys once more, something that proves fateful in Storm. It's interesting how often it's noted that Jura is suspicious of people, given his own actions here. Danny later thinks he distrusts everyone, and perhaps that's partly because he has knowledge of his own treachery. Right, and when Jorah returns, the two discuss plans, and we get two different views on what Jorah thinks of Danny. First, from her internal perspective, she thinks... Sometimes he thinks of me as a child he must protect, and sometimes as a woman he would like to bed. But does he ever truly see me as his queen? 
And then we hear from Jorah. He says he thinks of her more like Rhaegar than Viserys, clearly beginning to rate her and see her as a potential leader. By now, Danny has grown strong, and when Jorah warns her of her own mortality, she replies that dragons can be slain, but so can dragon slayers, and we sense that Danny is more ready than ever to take on the world. And Jorah continues to counsel Danny, thinking she should go east with him. He advises against going to Westeros, and despite some obvious possessiveness, there's a definite wisdom in some of his opinions. His urging for caution highlights the trap Danny's found herself in in Carth, especially after the refusal by the pureborn leads Danny to one of her many dice rolls in her arc to face Pyat Pri in the House of the Undying. And Jorah predictably protests, unimpressed by the building itself, reminding Danny of Miri Mazdor and pleading with his queen to take him in with her. As we know, Danny chooses to walk in alone at the request of Pyat Pri, and we'll talk about her experience with the Undying Ones in a future prophecy episode. But it's pertinent that Danny was warned that she would one day be betrayed for love. When she leaves, after some pyrotechnics from Drogon, her knight is there to put his arm around her. As Queen's Guard, by being ordered to leave his queen in danger, it shows the typical dilemma a guardsman faces, the type of which we hear about later from Barristan. And anyway, we're now taken to the docks, this time Danny's with Jorah. As the pair unsuccessfully try to hire a ship, with one captain saying, I'll have no such godless savages in my belly, I'll not, referring to the Dothraki, Jura tells Danny not to turn around because she's being followed. So Jura's very astute and has really good instincts that serve him well as a protector. He says the fat brown man and old man with a staff have been following them since they visited the ship Quicksilver. And as Danny haggles with a traitor, the tension rises and we sense an assassination attempt might be looming. When it comes, though, it's not from the suspicious pair, but from a Carthine offering a jeweled box. I'm so sorry, says the sorrowful man assassin, as a stinging manticore presents itself. The old man then kills the creature, and Jorah fights with the fat man, accusing them of attacking her. So far, Jorah's suspicious nature has really had the right of it. Piat and Zaro actually were worthy of suspicion. Yet now Jorah's wrong, and Danny sees it. They were protecting me, she tells him. And soon the men present themselves as strong Belwas and his curiously aged squire, Arstan Whitebeard, sent by Illyrio. As they tell Danny of their three ships, Jura studies Arstan, noting that he seems familiar. While some readers might have an inkling who Arstan actually is at this point, the stage is set for very interesting dynamics between those two. Jura's role as chief protector, advisor and queen's guard is now under threat as Arstan's protection against Danny's second assassination attempt draws Clash to a close. Okay, so now into A Storm of Swords and the tensions between Jorah and Arstan hinted at near the end of Clash soon begin to gain some depth. Whilst on the ship, Danny inquires... How long does a dragon live? And Jorah replies that a dragon's natural span of days is many times as long as a man's. Arstan interjects with information about Beleriand and that 
A dragon never stops growing, Your Grace, as long as he has food and freedom, and adds that captivity can stop them growing. Dora contests this, saying, I've seen huge men born in hovels and dwarfs who dwelt in castles. Yes, so some rather petty back and forths. And Arston announces that men are men and dragons are dragons. To which Jorah snorts his disdain and replies, with an abundance of sarcasm, how profound. And this exchange causes Danny to think, the exile knight had no love for the old man. He'd made that plain from the first. Well, if only Jorah would realize that Arstan was the legendary knight Barristan Selmy, he'd surely not doubt his knowledge of dragons, having served with Danny's father and her grandfather before him. But we're seeing a growing rivalry here, which increasingly resembles some sort of schoolboy contest between two aging and experienced men. It's quite humorous at times, and it highlights Jorah's deep insecurities and possessiveness about Danny. Yeah, and the two men really make quite a pair, and Jura continues to needle and attempt to undermine Arstan. When he says he saw Rhaegar play the harp, it says again that Jura snorted and made a snarky comment about Arstan being one of thousands, again not realising how close Arstan was to the Targaryens. But Danny seems intrigued by the old man, Jura is now not the only person who can offer tales of Westeros and her family, so no wonder there's this petty jealousy creeping in. Jura's role as sole advisor is beginning to come under threat. And Arstan starts to play with Jora somewhat. He has the advantage of knowing who Jora is, and so when they start to squabble over Rhaegar's martial prowess at tourneys, Arstan drops a line about tourney victories sometimes coming down to fortune, or, quote, a lady's favor knotted around an arm. Yeah, a clear dig at Jura regarding his tourney win that saw him take home Liness Hightower. We're reminded once more that she had ruined him and abandoned him, and the memory of her was bitter to him now. So, kind of triangles being established here. Yet we know that Arstan is not interested in Danny's body. This makes his motives purer, and he's also not been spying on her. So we can sense that Jorah is at risk of being pushed out here. Again, it's stated that Danny doesn't find him attractive, and when he pleads with her not to listen to the old man, she replies that she must listen to all of her people. Right, and because of his growing jealousy... Jorah starts to try and throw a spanner in Arstan's works, something which will end up backfiring later on. For now, he points out that Arstan is too old to be a squire and is playing her false. People in glass houses shouldn't be throwing those stones, Jorah. He even approaches Danny and suggests that Arstan and Belwes might be the traitors she was warned of in the House of the Undying, he then says that Arstan might have been in league with the sorrowful man, that it was all a setup and a ploy to win Danny's trust. Thankfully, Danny laughs at this absolutely absurd notion, but we can see that Jura's desperation is becoming ridiculous. And Danny begins to get annoyed with being talked to like a child. So the strain Jorah's putting on their relationship is becoming evident. 
Can you imagine what Jura was like with Liness? <laughs> right. I think we can imagine that relationship a little bit better now. When he convinces Danny to make a trip into Slaver's Bay after recounting the story of the Unsullied at Coor, Jora finally makes a move on Danny. She was getting changed, turned around, and bam! Jora slid his arms around her and pressed his lips against hers. She didn't have much time to think about this, and in the heat of the moment, she responded to him. Yet she thinks, he should not be doing this. I am his queen, not his woman. And so Danny tells him that he shouldn't have done it, but Jorah just shows no remorse, saying that he should have done it sooner. The chapter ends with Jorah telling her she should take him as a husband, in fitting with his interpretation of the Dragon Has Three Heads prophecy. He calls her the bravest, sweetest and most beautiful woman I have ever seen. And we can take a wild guess that this isn't what Danny wants. Once again, this rather unattractive and rough-around-the-edges man from Bear Island has fallen for a woman who's well above his station, and it's causing him to act in ways that he'll come to regret. And despite Danny taking his advice to go to Slaver's Bay, and to only speak the common tongue around the masters, a point that makes Danny think her bear is more clever than he looks She's also really sussing him out. It says she could not understand why Sir Jura mistrusted the old man so. Could he be jealous that I found another man to talk to? Unbidden, her thoughts went back to the night on Beleriand when the exiled knight had kissed her. He should have never done that. He is thrice my age and of too low a birth for me and I never gave him leave. No true knight would ever kiss a queen without her leave. She had taken care never to be alone with Sir Jorah after that, keeping her handmaidens with her aboard ship and sometimes her blood riders. He wants to kiss me again. I see it in his eyes. But despite triggering some sexual yearning in Danny, she notes that she never fantasizes about him. Jorah is being to use modern terminology, friend-zoned. It's clear that she still wants her son and stars, Caldrogo, and she lets Jorah know of his true place when she slaps him across the face and says, if you were my true knight, you would never have brought me to this vile sty. And at the same time, she thinks to herself, if you were my true knight, you would never have kissed me or looked at my breasts the way you did. So she's indicating a sense of betrayal there, that can only foreshadow what's to come. But first, it's Danny's turn to be treacherous, as Jura's lovely trip to Slaver's Bay and reminder that Rhaegar fought nobly and died leads Danny to once again roll the dice and take the Unsullied with fire and blood. It's interesting to note that Jura doesn't have much of a problem with slavery as a means to an end, while Arstan does objecting to Daenerys in front of the Masters. This puts the old man in line with Danny's own values and gives her more in common with him on a human level. And so, after Dracarys, we're in Yunkai as Danny sets out to bring Slaver's Bay to its knees. Jorah's giving advice on troops, and we see his rather cutthroat nature once more as he advises to get rid of the tale of freedmen now following them. 
But it's Miro, the Titan's bastard, who really makes his blood boil. His offer to taste Danny's tongue predictably taps into Jorah's jealous side. It says, She could sense Sir Jorah's anger. My black bear does not like this talk of kissing. And it's time that Danny addressed this jealousy. When the swaggering Dario Naharis offers an alliance and catches her eye, Jura once again tries to put a barrier around his queen. He says, Tenares, I am thrice your age. I have seen how false men are. Very few are worthy of trust, and Dario Naharis is not one of them. Even his beard wears false colours. But Danny's had enough and decides to iron things out. Her reply is this. You say it every day. Pyat Pri's a liar. Zaros a schemer. Belwas a braggart. Arstan an assassin. Do you think I'm still some virgin girl that I cannot hear the words behind your words? You have been a better friend to me than any I have known, a better brother than Viserys ever was. You are the first of my queen's guard, the commander of my army, my most valued counselor, my good right hand. I honor and respect and cherish you, but I do not desire you, Jorah Mormont, and I am weary of your trying to push every other man in the world away from me, so I must needs rely on you and you alone. It will not serve, and it will not make me love you any better. Well, that's some monologue from Danny, who is quite fierce when she wants to be, and puts her bear in his place. This speech is so effective that Jura flushed red and then pale, standing still as stone. Ouch. Yes, really. And yet she reassures herself that he'll forgive her, being her liege man, and soon Jora, splattered with blood, brings her news of a swift victory over the Yunkai. Clearly, Danny's rejection has not stopped Jora's designs of impressing the young queen, who's soon called Misa. Okay, and next to Marine. We've not seen the Arstan Jora rivalry for a while. But soon enough, Jura is once again seen snorting at the old man's suggestion of how to combat the Miranese champion. Danny orders enough. It says she did not need their squabbling on top of all the other troubles that plagued her. And as Danny tries to figure out how to take this large city, Brown Ben Plum suggests a trip down the sewers might be an effective, if disgusting, tactic. Meanwhile, Danny's growing increasingly attracted to Dario Naharis, pushing Jora further away from her affections and further into the friend zone. She thinks Dario Naharis made her laugh, which Sir Jora never did. Danny tried to imagine what it would be like if she allowed Dario to kiss her the way Jora had kissed her on the ship. The thought was exciting and disturbing both at once. But it's when Miro is slain by Barristan and the mob that Jorah's position with Danny really takes a nosedive. On one hand, Arstan again saved Danny, yet on the other, it's catalyzed a confession from the old man. Nobody will believe he's a squire now, as he's taunted by Jorah, who's trying to cause trouble for him. And it's really because of Jorah that he has to admit he's a knight, and Jorah names him Sir Barristan Selmy. He talks of his time serving the usurper, and all the while Jorah is needling him, at one stage offering to kill him for his treachery. But then Barristan says this, Before I took Robert's pardon, 
I fought against him on the trident. You were on the other side of that battle, Marmont, were you not? He did not wait for an answer. Your Grace, I'm sorry I misled you. It was the only way to keep the Lannisters from learning that I had joined you. You are watched, as your brother was. Lord Varys reported every move Viserys made for years. Whilst I sat on the small council, I heard a hundred such reports. And since the day you wed Caldrogo, there has been an informer by your side, selling your secrets, trading whispers to the spider for gold and promises. So, a really important moment here in pushing Barristan to reveal his secrets Jura has himself been finally revealed to be a liar and a traitor to Danny, and she is in absolute shock. She thinks there must be some mistake, and she just can't believe it. Knowing that he's been found out, Jura confesses and begs forgiveness. Danny says, "Are all the knights of Westeros so false as you two? Get out before my dragons roast you both." What does roast liar smell like? As foul as Brown Ben's sewers? Go. And it's to the sewers that Danny sends them to aid the taking of Marine. When the city is taken, it's time for Danny to make a fateful decision as she judges both Jorah and Barristan for their sins. You helped win this city, and you have served me well in the past, she says. Sir Jorah saved me from the poisoner in Vaes Dothrak, and again from Drogo's blood riders after my son and stars had died. And yet, you lied, deceived me, betrayed me. She also levels her criticisms at Barristan, who handles this all, it says, with a quiet dignity, which seems to impress Danny. When Sir Barristan was done, she turned to Jorah Mormont. And now you, sir, tell me true. Jura defends himself by pointing out all the time he warned her of men, and her reply is, you warned me against everyone except yourself. And whereas Barristan took his criticisms on the chin with that air of dignity we mentioned, she sees Jura as being insolent, and this angers her. Then comes his confession that he'd been spying on her as far along as Karth, after that dangerous and bonding journey they'd shared across the Red Waste. And still, Jorah seems almost oblivious to his hypocrisy, continuing to call other people snakes. But the killer blow is when Danny realises he'd informed the realm of a pregnancy with Rago. Jorah is now in serious trouble here, and his attitude is not winning any favours. He finally demands that he should be forgiven, You have to forgive me, he says, and despite some cognitive dissonance towards the man who once protected her, she decides it's too late, that she doesn't have to forgive him as he's requesting, and that now she won't forgive him. Danny interprets her treason for love prophecy from the House of the Undying as being Jorah, which further solidifies her stance. And the two-part company with Danny's last tirade. I will not have you near me. You are banished, sir. Go back to your masters in King's Landing and collect your pardon, if you can, or to Astapor. No doubt the Butcher King needs knights. Do not ever presume to touch me again or to speak my name. You have until dawn to collect your things and leave this city. If you're found in Marine past break of day, I will have strong Belwas twist your head off. I will. Believe that. She turned her back on him, her skirts swirling. I cannot bear to see his face. 
Remove this liar from my sight, she commanded. So that's goodbye to Jura. Baristan is pardoned, and we now see Jura's role in Danny's arc being filled by another man, which was probably his biggest fear. Baristan can advise, protect, serve, and will treat her like a true queen. And the groundwork's been laid for Dario to take up the love interest role. Jura's role in Danny's story, at least for the time being, is now over. His possessive nature, weakness in love, stubbornness, hypocrisy and his trust issues already culminated in once again losing the fondness of the woman he desired. And now the knight finds himself exiled for the second time. Okay, and on the subject of Jorah in love, we're going to bookend our look at Clash and Storm with a defining moment of the Danny Jorah relationship. Here's a reading of the Black Bear trying his luck with Daenerys. Sir Jorah slid his arms around her. Oh, was all Danny had time to say as he pulled her close and pressed his lips down on hers. He smelled of sweat and salt and leather, and the iron studs on his jerkin dug into her naked breasts as he crushed her hard against him. One hand held her by the shoulder while the other slid down her spine to the small of her back, and her mouth opened for his tongue, though she never told it to. His beard is scratchy, she thought, but his mouth is sweet. He should not be doing this. I am his queen, not his woman. It was a long kiss, though how long, Danny could not have said. When it ended, Sir Jorah let her go of her, and she took a quick step backward. You, you should not have. I should not have waited so long. I should have kissed you in Carth, in Vase Toloro. I should have kissed you in the Red Waste, every night and every day. You were made to be kissed, often and well. His eyes were on her breasts. Danny covered them with her hands before her nipples could betray her. I... That was not fitting. I am your queen. My queen. And the bravest, sweetest, and most beautiful woman I have ever seen. Daenerys. Your grace. Your grace. He conceded. The dragon has three heads, remember? Well, here's your meaning. Beleriand, Miraxis, and Vagar, ridden by Aegon, Rhaenys, and Visenya. The three-headed dragon of House Targaryen. Three dragons and three riders. Yes, said Danny, but my brothers are dead. Rhaenys and Visenya were Aegon's wives as well as his sisters. You have no brothers, but you can take husbands. And I tell you truly, Daenerys, there is no man in all the world who will ever be half so true to you as me. Okay, now let's consider what happens with Jorah in A Dance of Dragons. Having been disgracefully discharged from Danny's Queensguard, and knowing of Jorah's somewhat stubborn and obsessive nature, is not much of a surprise when we realise he hasn't given up on his love just yet. What is a surprise, however, is that the first time we see the bear, he's in Solores with a young, pretty, silver-haired whore on his lap. I think we can guess why Jorah chose her. 
Yes, and this reminds us that past the treachery and all those other negative qualities we've highlighted, Dora ultimately cuts quite a sad figure, perhaps worthy of some sympathy. What happens to him throughout dance really highlights and compounds this. So we begin with that whorehouse in Selhoris, up the river from Volantis, where a rather the worse for wear Tyrion Lannister sees the burly man with this whore. Well, Tyrion didn't like the look of him. He didn't know who he was, but was glad to hear the common tongue. Until Jorah grabbed the helpless imp and vowed to deliver him to the queen. Of course, Tyrion is scared of Cersei's dwarf dragnet at this point, but we can guess that Jorah might have his sights set on another queen. It's interesting that the first time we see Jorah through another man's eyes, there's suspicion and the taking of a hostage, and being tied up is something that rears itself later on in a way that Jorah never anticipated. And as we get to Volantis, we see that the pairing of Tyrion and Jorah is very interesting. They really make good foils for one another. They've both disappointed their families, they broke large taboos, and here, together, they seem to be hitting rock bottom. And despite all the similarities between these two outcasts, though, their personalities couldn't be any more different. Jorah's cold, sullen, humorless, and typically Tyrion is making japes at everything. It's not long before these dynamics begin to take root. Yeah, Jorah asks how Tyrion could kill his own sire. And Tyrion responds by telling him to pull down his breeches and he will show him. So it should be an interesting journey with these two. There's lots going on thematically and in their personalities as well. So far, despite his bickering with Barristan and the odd, harsh word from Danny, Jorah's not had anyone who will really stand up to him consistently and shine a light on his flaws. But Tyrion has no such trouble. When Jorah remarks about Tyrion's familiarity with whores, the imp retorts and highlights Jorah's hypocrisy, having just seen a whore in the bear's lap. Jorah begins to give Tyrion the silent treatment, quickly growing tired of all the japes. Jura, more than ever, is now a serious man with a mission. He soon takes Tyrion to his smithy and has him bound in iron manacles. This was because he thought Tyrion's mouth would get them into trouble, but bound as a slave, nobody would listen to him. Now, despite this move, the pair do start to bond somewhat, catalyzed by Tyrion figuring out who Jorah is, and going as far as the bear sharing the story of his marriage to Lyness. It says, I spent the best part of a year here, the knight sloshed down the dregs at the bottom of his tankard. When Stark drove me into exile, I fled to Lys with my second wife. Bravos would have suited me better, but Lyness wanted someplace warm. Instead of serving the Bravosi, I fought them on the Rhoyne. But for every silver I earned, my wife spent ten. By the time I got back to Lys, she had taken a lover who told me cheerfully that I would be enslaved for debt unless I gave her up and left the city. That is how I came to Volantis, one step ahead of slavery, owning nothing but my sword and the clothes upon my back. So relations improve as time goes on, and Jura takes Tyrion to the widow by the waterfront. And now the imp realises he's been taken to Marine, away from Cersei's clutches and not to King's Landing. 
and the pair, now with the young dwarf woman Penny in their company, board the Selasori Koran to take them east. Once on board, it doesn't take Tyrion too long to realise how infatuated with Danny Jorah actually is. It says, Twice exiled and small wonder, Tyrion thought. I'd exile him too if I could. The man is cold, brooding, sullen, deaf to humour. And those are his good points. Sir Jorah spent most of his waking hours pacing the forecastle or leaning on the rail, gazing out to sea. Looking for his silver queen, looking for Daenerys, willing the ship to sail faster. Well, I might do the same if Tisha waited in Marine. Yeah, Tyrion is without a doubt the best amateur psychologist of all the POVs, and he puts his skills to good use on board the Selasori Koran. He soon figures out that Jorah had been spying on Danny, and that he hopes to win back her favor by presenting the imp to her. Tyrion calls it an ill-considered scheme and an act of drunken desperation, and as he goes on to compare Jorah to Florian the Fool, Jorah hits him so hard he breaks his tooth. Tyrion's head bounces off the deck. Yeah, the humorless Jorah had been pushed too far now and says, I am sick of your mouth, dwarf, threatening to smash the rest of his teeth. In subsequently exiling Tyrion from his cabin, we see that Jorah's been undone by Tyrion here. The smart game would be to keep a very close eye on your captive. But it turns out that Jorah has more pressing concerns as a slaver boat approaches the Silasori Koran. And despite killing three of the slavers, Jorah soon finds himself a captive, ready to be sold. And now the boot is on the other foot of the one-time slaver. The slavers nearly killed him, but he was deemed to be worth a lot as a warrior, and so he was chained to an oar and beaten within an inch of his life. He was also branded with the mark of a demon on his face, transforming it, as Tyrion notes, into something truly frightening. Jorah's now in a terrible situation. Fortunately, once they reach Slaver's Bay, Tyrion's quick thinking, knowing they'd all be better off together, pays off as the imp convinces the slavers that Jorah is the bear in their routine of the bear and the maiden fair. And Jorah soon hears of Danny's marriage to Hisdar, and Tyrion notes that the news finally kicks the fight out of the bear. He is put into a cage and seems to take very regular beatings. Here's a passage. The knight had not adapted well to bondage. When called upon to play the bear and carry off the maiden fair, he had been sullen and uncooperative shuffling lifelessly through his paces when he deigned to take part in their mummery at all. Though he had not attempted escape nor offered violence to his captors, he would ignore their commands oft as not or reply with muttered curses. None of this had amused Nurse, who made his displeasure clear by confining Mormont in an iron cage and having him beaten every evening as the sun sank into Slaver's Bay. The knight absorbed the beating silently, The only sounds were the muttered curses of the slaves who beat him and the dull thuds of their clubs pounding against Sir Jorah's bruised and battered flesh. Mormont emerged from the cramped confines of the cage, bent and squinting, with both eyes blackened and his back crusty with dried blood. His face was so bruised and swollen that he hardly looked human. 
Mm, so things are very grim for Jorah here. And all of this because he tried to regain Danny's favour. Tyrion notes that he'd become a shell of a man. And I think we can really sympathise with the big man here. At this point, it doesn't seem like Jorah can get much lower. But soon enough, their owner, Yazan, dies of the Pale Mare. And so the trio escape and find the second son's camp. And of course, Jorah has already met Brown Ben Plum. Here is the passage when they meet again. Mormont's face might have been unrecognizable in its battered state, but his voice was unchanged. Casporio gave him a startled look, whilst the wrinkles around Plum's eyes crinkled in amusement. Jorah Mormont? Is that you? Less proud than when you scampered off, though. Must we still call you Sir? Sir Jorah's swollen lips twisted into a grotesque grin. Give me a sword and you can call me what you like, Ben. Casporio edged backward. You... she sent you away. I came back. Call me a fool. And here Tyrion echoes the thoughts of the reader. It says, a fool in love. It's a lucky break that Jorah was able to get to the Second Sons as he signs up to the Swords. But we know by now his mind is probably still thinking of meeting Danny again. And he tells Tyrion they need to realign the Second Sons over to Danny's cause. And that's where we are at the end of Dance. So Dance with Dragons really showed Jorah in a different light. We saw him in a far more sympathetic light by the end, really. The descriptions of his beatings and seeing close up this almost tragic romantic side, with the destruction it invariably brings to him, shows us that, as Jorah admitted, he's simply a fool, and as Tyrion added, a fool in love. Not having his point of view, we're left to wonder if, since becoming a slave, does Jorah now have more regret and sympathy for those poachers he sold off? What regret might he feel for his role in involving Daenerys in the politics of Slaver's Bay? And how might his views have changed or aligned with hers? Whether we see a new wisdom in Jorah, in light of his recent plights, remains to be seen, and it will be very interesting to see how his arc continues in The Winds of Winter. But next we'll be discussing exactly that, what we think could happen to him in Winds. But first, here's a message from today's sponsors. Are you a man in need of a makeover? A bear seeking to impress that maiden fair? Are you thrice her age and struggling to hold her gaze? Then book yourself in at the Bear Island Men's Boutique and Beauty Parlor. For all those men whose arms or chest are covered in coarse black hair, so thick there's none left for your head, we offer quick and discreet hair transplants. Kill two birds with one stone by moving hair from body to head. And for those men who have regrettable facial tattoos or brandings, try our removal service. And finally, for those who've been stuck in the fashion dark ages wearing last year's wool and leather, we can stitch you up in a new silk and linen tunic in no time at all. Bear Island Men's Boutique. Time to look less like a bear and more like a knight. 
those were some words from today's sponsors. So far today, we've given an account of Jorah's Ark. His weakness for an attractive lady is well documented, yet with the events of dance, we can sympathize with the bear. But there's other facets of Jorah that shouldn't be overlooked. He's proven himself to be a very good fighter, and his competence as a dutiful subordinate and advisor were on display all through his story, and there's also leadership skills in evidence, we think. But as we contemplate what will happen further on in his story, we shouldn't forget that yearning for home that first led him to spying and ultimately caused him to lose his place by Danny's side. Okay, so Jorah is currently with the Second Sons, soon to be embroiled in the Battle of Fire. From what we know of the Winds of Winter spoiler chapters, and spoiler warnings here, Jorah kills a Yunkish messenger who has ordered an attack on Danny's unsullied troops and demanded Tyrion be turned over as an escaped slave, just before Brown Ben Plum announces that the Second Sons have been on Danny's side all along. So Jorah will no doubt be trying to worm his way into Danny's favor once again, but it'll be interesting if the two meet in the future to see if she rejects him again. Yeah, so here's an option at what could happen if that's the case. We're going to look at the possibility that Jorah joins the Night's Watch, and this is a common enough notion put forth by the fandom, but currently has some holes and flaws that really need to be filled. Anyway, this idea really comes from Lord Commander Jor Mormont's dying wish as a father and a man of the Night's Watch. Yeah, it's in Storm when there's the mutiny at Craster's and Jor is slain by Alolapand. But before he dies, he speaks his last wishes to Samuel Tarley. He lies breathing shallowly and instructs, Tell my son, Jorah, tell him, take the black. My wish, dying wish. And then, tell Jorah, forgive him, my son, please go. So, Jor's dying message is very clear, and it's curious that George wrote this in. And thus far, there's been no efforts from Sam or anyone else to find Jorah. But we think Jorah joining the Night's Watch might actually serve the story and the character rather well. Jura has been exiled all this time, and the first thing about this idea that might appeal to him is the notion of finally going home. Yeah, and as Jura alludes to in his dying wishes, joining the Night's Watch would relieve Jora of his sins. This is really what he should have done way back when Ned found out about the poachers and slavers. He brought great shame to his house and his family, and this must be on his conscience deep down. Joining the Watch would grant him forgiveness as past crimes are forgotten. Jorah could finally face up to his responsibilities and win back some honor. If he only knew Jorah's last words, we think that he could be profoundly affected by them. And at this point, we have to remember there's no indication that Jorah knows his father is dead yet. It might all add up to a convincing case for him to heed Jorah's advice and wishes. But okay, there's more ways in which Jorah taking the black seems like a nice fit. His arc and backstory are largely about him severely losing his way because of some kind of weakness with women. 
We've seen him shamed and exiled, and it's led to his own enslavement. We've sensed his desperation and despair. So if Danny once again rejects him, wouldn't a place where men are not exactly encouraged to be with women be very fitting? Yeah, taking the black might really fit Jorah's arc, with the numerous problems being solved in one move. There's also Longclaw. Jorah gave the family heirloom to John, with his true son Jorah being disgraced. But since all sins are absolved in taking the black, we guess that might put Jorah in good stead to reinherit the sword, which of course would be at John's discretion. But there's a school of thought that John might end up fighting with Dawn, and if that turns out to be true, it could open up the possibility that Longclaw would need a new owner and could once again have a bear's pommel and be in the hands of a mormon. Okay, so we've shown why this Night's Watch notion fits and might serve the character well. However, there's currently a huge problem with this theory. Jura really needs to hear what Jaws' final wishes were to catalyze a kind of redemptive journey to Castle Black. And as far as we know, the only person who knows about the old bear's dying words is Samuel Tarley. Hmm, Sam, who is now far, far away in Old Town. With Jorah currently in Slaver's Bay, there's a heck of a distance between the two. They're half a world apart. So we have an idea about how Sam could communicate with Jorah. In Storm, Pip names Sam, Sam the Wizard. And although this is a joke, perhaps there's a nugget of truth in there. Yeah, in Feast, at the Citadel, Marwyn lights a glass candle in his study. Here's what Marwyn says to Sam about glass candles. The sorcerers of the Freehold could see across mountains, seas and deserts with one of these glass candles. They could enter a man's dreams and give him visions and speak to one another half a world apart, seated before their candles. Do you think that might be useful, Slayer? So, the candles enable communication over vast distances. We think it's no coincidence that one was lit as Sam came to the Citadel, and what's more, Marwyn has left. He's conveniently left one of these magical items primed and ready for use, and we think Sam will use it. He could, for example, relay important information to John about the others, like things that he learns at the Citadel. Yeah, and we think that's quite likely. But he might also realise that he can fulfil Jaws' dying orders and tell Jorah his father's wish was for him to join the Night's Watch and earn forgiveness for his crimes. Sam could use the glass candle to do this, and the distance between them wouldn't matter at all. And seeing a vision like Marwyn described could be an extra powerful way of making Jura take note and listen to the story of his father's demise and final wishes. Okay, so that's our idea about how Sam might contact Jura and change the direction his arc is headed. Like we said, Jura has many positive qualities, those of a warrior, advisor, and handy subordinate that might be very useful on the wall. With the Night's Watch already depleted and in chaos, they're really going to need competent men. Without women to distract him, and perhaps with a newfound sense of pride, Jorah could be just what they need. And we also think it would make a good story. 
Yeah, we do. And with the others soon to arrive, it would make sense to us if there were some characters heading north just in time for the drama. And so that completes our look at the hairy bear, Jorah Mormont. My handmaids say there are ghosts here. There are ghosts everywhere, Sir Jorah said softly. We carry them with us wherever we go. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed our look at Jorah Mormont. Coming up next, we'll be analyzing another non-point of view character, Peter Baelish. So we hope you'll come back for our up-close look at Littlefinger. And now, as always, it's time to give credit where credit is due. Thanks so much to George R.R. Martin for giving us the world of Westeros to play in. And to all you listeners who tune in, donate, and spread the word, we couldn't do it without you. Thanks also to Nine Inch Nails and Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use elements of their music in our production. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also donate and comment on our content there, or connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Google+, or Tumblr. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with Littlefinger. Bye!